0: This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And the second reading is Isaiah, chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Amen. So there's um, a story uh, which takes place today that Jesus is risen. Two disciples are walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I think it's a journey of about eight, ten miles. And they're discussing everything that has happened. Um, You know they've been uh, kind of apprentices of Jesus probably for a couple of years by this point and they are fully invested in the idea of his kingdom coming, uh, possibly imagining freedom from the Roman occupiers and uh, and a kind of a great restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But then suddenly things have turned on their heads very quickly. Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, um, their hope really is arrested and tried and executed all in a night and a day and now some of the women disciples in their group had visited his tomb and found that Jesus' body had gone and have spoken to to these two disciples of an encounter with an angel who told them that Jesus is alive and as they're walking mulling everything over Jesus appears beside them and he starts walking with them And Luke, who who tells this story, doesn't explain why they don't recognize Jesus immediately. Um, They're described as downcast. Maybe, you know, that was their eyes as well as their hearts. So I've got a picture. There you go. Not an actual picture, but an artistic rendition. This is what Jesus says to them. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them... And here's the key thing: what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself? What was said in all the scriptures concerning himself? Now, if you've been um, part of All Souls for any length of time, you'll know that our, our vision is all about living as disciples of Jesus. The, the best modern equivalent to that word is apprentices. So, as apprentices of Jesus. And, and last September in our vision series, we unpacked that from John 15. Um, Jesus says farewell discourse, a collection of teachings that um, Jesus sort of gave to his disciples on or around the Last Supper as he prepared to go to the cross. And uh, last Sunday, Mike reminded us of those verses. We heard them again this morning, um, uh, a spot of revision, as it were. And we saw, uh, again, these three goals which have shaped our vision, our teaching, hopefully our lives over the past 12 months. First, to be with Jesus, abide in me, Jesus taught them, remain in me, apart from me you can do nothing. So the first task of a disciple, be with your rabbi, with your teacher, like the branches connected to a vine. And we've talked about what it means to practice the presence of God, developing our relationship with him, because without that the rest is pointless. Um, Well, not pointless exactly, but certainly without foundation. Second, being a disciple of Jesus means seeking to become like him. This is the process of formation. We are all disciples of something or someone or some combination of things which shape us and form us, consciously or unconsciously. Christians choose to be formed by Jesus in his image. That's the goal. And then third, um, doing what Jesus did uh, carrying out his mission or in Jesus' analogy of the vine and the branches bearing fruit again Mike talked about this last Sunday the oldest biggest vine in the world I think it is is at Hampton Court yes um uh, it's what 250 years old something like that okay put your hand up if you've ever seen it okay some of you yes yeah okay right good Um, And each year it bears, I can't remember what it was, was it 90 pounds, 90 kilograms or something? A large amount of grapes. It bears a lot of grapes and it's a very fruitful vine. I was thinking 90 pounds of grapes would last our boys about, they get through them in about three days. Um, They like their grapes. And actually once we finish this vision series, um, we're going to spend the rest of the term looking at the mission of the church, that, that's the doing what Jesus did, um, the bearing fruit, or, or, what he, or what he would do if he were in our shoes today, is, is one way of putting it. So if you've really been following closely, you'll see that our teaching in the spring term, back, back in um, January, February, March, looked at the first of these three goals, if you like, how to be with Jesus. Then the summer term, we covered um, how we become more like Jesus. I say covered, I should probably say scratch the surface, there's more. And this term, we're looking at the doing, the mission, the bearing fruit, what that means in practice. And if this is starting to sound familiar or you're thinking we've heard this all before, good. <laughs> um, because that means that we're being consistent uh, with that vision and that you're starting to internalize it. Um, spoiler alert, we're planning to do this each September, um, every, each year to sort of remind ourselves what we're all about as a church. If you're still here, and I'm still here in 10 years time, September 2033, um, I hope we will still be holding this vision because it really is the whole ball game. Living as disciples, apprentices of Jesus in the world today, is what being a Christian is all about. Whatever age or stage we're at, cradle to grave, the goal is to become evermore his disciples. It's the reason that we are here on this earth, living our lives as the redeemed people of God, those saved by his incredible grace through the death of Jesus on the cross, filled with his Holy Spirit to proclaim in word and action his kingdom, which is advancing and will continue to grow until the day he returns and makes all things new. have an amen. Yes. So, back to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, with Jesus, who explains to them how the Old Testament scriptures point to, in fact, are all about him. And it's worth taking a moment here because we, we preach the New Testament a lot here at All Souls. We look specifically at the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the story of the early church in its formative years, because there's so much for us to learn from that. But that's not because the Old Testament is irrelevant or superseded by the new. In fact, the Old Testament was the scripture uh, to Jesus and his disciples. There was no new at that point, obviously. And here we have Jesus showing them, these two disciples, how everything in the scriptures, the law and the prophets, is all about him. Not just some select verses or some passages that maybe we read at Christmas, all of it and, uh, you know, for, for those of us who are reading the New Testament um, in a year together, that's about 12 of us uh, are doing that at the moment. We met up at the Elsa Tavern uh, last week to mark reaching the halfway point. We started in Lent, so we're about 180 days in. Um, and I love the strapline of the Bible Project who do the um, amazing videos that accompany our readings each day. Um, if you've never come across them, go and search for the Bible Project on YouTube. Um, and they describe the Bible as one story leading to Jesus. I think that's a great strapline. Um, And so we're going to look at this chapter from Isaiah 35 um, that Lynn's read, and we're going to see how it points us to Jesus. Um, And I've I've just got to say this this passage hasn't been plucked out of thin air. Um, There's a bit of a story to why um, I've I've chosen it for this year's vision series. Um, Come back next week if you want to hear that story. It's too much to say today already. Here's a crash course in Isaiah. So Isaiah was um, a prophet. Uh, someone sent by God to speak on his behalf to his people, um, who seems to have written rather strangely both before and after Israel's exile in Babylon. I say strangely because the exile lasted 70 years according to Jeremiah, which means it's unlikely that Isaiah wrote it all in person. And certainly the the shape of it suggests two periods of writing, um, or at least it being compiled. All the biblical prophets they speak of a combination of two main themes, judgment and hope. And they wrote mostly in the times of the kings of Israel and Judah. This is hundreds of years before Jesus comes onto the scene, starting about a thousand years really before Jesus. Uh, the, Israel and Judah, these twin kingdoms established under the reigns of, of King Saul and then King David and Solomon. Um, and then after that, divided by civil war. That's how they become the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And from that high point of Israel's history under kind of David and Solomon um, and the high point of Israel's relationship with God, really, under those three kings, characterized by God's powerful presence with his people in the temple, um, it's this it's, it's era of God dwelling once again, right in the midst of his people. But then it all goes wrong. And Israel and Judah, under the leadership of just a, a string of increasingly bad kings, with a few notable exceptions, they really start to plumb the depths to the point that God says, you know, you're out of this deal. You've, you, you've walked away. You've turned away. And worse than that, and, and he starts to send them warnings through the prophets that if they don't change, if they don't return to him, he's going to send the neighboring superpowers in to kind of sort them out. And the irony is, is if you've, um, if you've ever wondered about how Israel came to be in the land in the first place and the, had ethical questions about the, 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 their conquest. God makes it clear that he brings them into the land. He brings the people into the land, not because they are great people in themselves, but because of the horrific evil practices of the current inhabitants. You know, child sacrifice is one of the things that God uh, lists that he particularly hates And he gives that amongst other evils as the reason for Israel um, or his people coming into that land and conquering and entering that land. We should look at that um, in more depth another time. And yet, here is Israel now under these bad kings who are not, they're now doing the very things that God brought them into the land to eradicate. Including, believe it or not, child sacrifice. That's how far. They've fallen. How far it's gone wrong. And exploitation of the poor and mistreating foreigners. The lists are all there. And so we get prophets like Isaiah kind of sticking their necks out, telling their own people and their terrible kings that God is going to judge them. And he's going to put a stop to all their evil. And this is what we read in the first part of Isaiah. It's mostly the judgment. There's a bit of hope, but it's mostly judgment. And Halfway through Isaiah, that trend is reversed. The second half is more focused on hope. And it's written from the perspective of the return from exile, from Babylon. The most likely explanation seems to be that Isaiah had a kind of a school of disciples, if you like, who sealed up and kept his scrolls safe through the exile and then published them afterwards, passing the message down. This was kind of a common practice in the ancient world. A great person um, was represented by their students, not just as an individual. And I'd love to do this properly. Maybe we'll, we'll do a series on Isaiah sometime, all um, the prophets. But the hope in the second half of Isaiah is centered around the promise of God's chosen king, who will come and rule justly, and This figure of a suffering servant who will somehow save God's people. A king who will come to suffer. Does that sound like anyone that you can think of? And remember, this is all written hundreds of years before Jesus appeared on the scene. One story leading to Jesus. But here's the thing. Commentaries, and I've read a few, disagree where this kind of midway split in Isaiah comes the judgment before and the hope after and guess where isaiah 35 our reading sits it's right in the middle of the bit that's argued over so some place it before the exile in that time of mostly judgment others after in that in that kind of language of mostly hope but it sits right on the cusp it's the kind of pivot point it speaks of god's people and the land being in a bad way Life is hard, the going is tough, but there is hope ahead. And that hope is centred on a promise of God's presence. God coming to be with his people once more. So let's take a look. Isaiah 35 is held up as, quote, one of the most beautiful poems ever written. It is an Exodus poem. It echoes Israel's backstory about being brought out of captivity by Moses into the desert place, which becomes a place of both hardship and flourishing. And that context of hardship and flourishing is so helpful, so relevant to us, because it is the context for God's people today and arguably since the very first days of the church. You know, sometimes in Christian circles, you will hear um, the the so-called prosperity gospel preached, follow Jesus and everything will be easy and happy. Which is the opposite of what jesus actually said he said in this world you will have trouble that's what he said it's going to be hard but he said take heart for i have overcome the world being a christian being a disciple of jesus is all about learning to flourish in the hard places so that's the history lesson it's time for a bit of geography um you know it's it's been back to school week hasn't it you can tell by the queues on the road can't you The setting for this poem, using the three words given in in verse 1, wilderness, dry land, and araba, are understood to refer to a specific place, namely the rift of Jordan, uh, south of the Dead Sea, towards the Gulf of Aqaba. Anyone been there? Have you? Oh, I'll speak to you afterwards, Sam. Um, You tell me if this is a true picture of it, then. Um, This part of the Negev, this is what the commentators say, this part of the Negev was a disputed territory between Edom and Judah during their entire existence. And uh, this is how Watts describes it. Although, yeah, although dry and forbidding in the eyes of some, it drew shepherds and farmers who hoped for rain that seldom came. The land was essentially fruitful if only water were available. Just hold on to that. That's, that's the, the rest of the sermon right there. The land was essentially fruitful if only water were available. So the problem is about um, the poem is about a pilgrim people coming out of exile into this fertile but desertified wilderness, needing just a little water. Um, I can relate having spent far too much time on the H37 this week. Israel's message, Isaiah's message, sorry, is is that the water is coming. The wilderness will be transformed into a garden land. That's what Carmel uh, means literally, garden land. Sharon means beautified. The parched land will become a beautiful, beautified garden land. And it will see God's glory. Remember, God's glory is seen in the wilderness. Um, Often, in fact, in in the Exodus story, in Jesus' life, in the Christian life today, and here in Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Why? Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, says the voice of judgment. With divine retribution, he will come and he will save you. He will come and he will save you. The pilgrims are weak. They are feeble. Their knees are giving way. Their hearts are fearful. Isaiah says, do not fear because your God is coming. He is coming to be with you. And those are the verses we're looking at today, just verses one to four. We'll look at the other verses in the next two weeks. When we talk about being with Jesus as the primary goal of the Christian life, this is what it means. It's not about religious obedience or observance or as some sort of burden to carry. It's because we are a pilgrim people living our lives in the wilderness. Yes, the UK today is very much a spiritual wilderness and God's presence is like water in the desert of our sometimes dry and dusty lives. Water brings life. Water saves. Isaiah paints a picture of God's presence as water bringing flourishing in the desert. God's presence brings life. That's the message of these verses. And it's the message that Jesus drew on when talking about um, giving living water to the woman at the well. So, in fact, right from Genesis 2... To the end of Revelation, water and the river is a symbol of God's presence and his blessing. Simon Ponserby uh, gave a brilliant talk about this um, a New Wine this year. God's presence is a river. Our job is to stay in the river. The river brings life. We know this, don't we? We live in London, um, a city like so many others, which owes its, is, is, owes its existence to a river. We know about the importance of water too, right? Especially in a hot city. Um, I was, um, expecting to, wasn't expecting to have this image to draw on in September, but we were on the underground yesterday, um, coming back from a birthday trip for Nathan and his friends to the Power Up exhibition at the Science Museum, 16, pers- uh, 16 person in the room, Halo, which they loved. Um, and I introduced them to the wonder of the N64 um, and four-player GoldenEye, which they weren't so impressed with simpler times, I was myself. look, uh, reliving my, anyway. Um, And we were on the platform waiting uh, for the next packed train, and over the tannoy comes his advice about surviving in the heat. Um, My favourite line was, if someone on the train is ill, get them off the train at the next station, Um, as if Londoners needed any encouragement to shove a sick person off the train, I felt. But the key advice was, always carry a bottle of water. Water is life, literally. And having spent several days trying to design a kind of a network of fans in our house to keep us cool, I realize this is largely pointless now. Does anyone else do this? You sort of position all the fans to try and create a kind of a funnel, the hot air out of the house and have a highly detailed regime of opening and closing various windows and doors. Does anyone else do that? Yeah, okay, me. It just doesn't work, does it? (laughs) Well, it does a bit. Um, If if you really want to stay cool, nothing beats the paddling pool in the shade in the garden, does it? Water is life. For the Christian, the disciple, being with Jesus is life. So how do we do it? Um, I'd like to refer you to our spring term teaching. You should still be able to find that on our podcast, but there are some basic building blocks for the disciple seeking to be with Jesus. First of all, come along on a Sunday, you know, not just if there's nothing else on come jesus is present in our worship as we open his word in fellowship in communion in our prayer ministry come and connect as we gather Second, um, engage with the ancient spiritual practices that have been honed by disciples of Jesus over 2,000 years. Again, we taught on some of these in January and February, back when we were meeting in the hall, if you remember. Silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, scripture, Sabbath, simplicity, long walks, community. These are just a few ways that you can connect with God, and they are all practices that Jesus um, did to connect with his Father. Um, Third, we talk about um, connect groups uh, quite a lot. Um, Connect groups are midweek, small communities, small group communities. um, uh, We call them connect groups. There's two purposes of of group. Connect with God and connect with each other. And they're a place where we can go a little bit deeper, share something more of our lives, and get down into the detail, figuring out what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Come and talk to me um, or to Ritesh or Mike when he's here um about getting involved with the connect group this term um whether or not you've ever done that before and remember that none of this this is really important none of this is about earning favor with God Um, we are not saved by anything we can do only by what Jesus has done for us it's all grace we're saved from our sin and its consequences but this this is what we are saved for We are saved to enjoy God's presence and to know him in our lives. Uh, Nearly done. Um, Three things to end with. First, um, so first, yes, are you thirsty? Um, It's a good question for this morning, Um, but not in the um, physical sense. Are you feeling parched, feeble, fearful, needing rescue in the wilderness? Jesus says, come to me. the world promises so much, but delivers so little. We've traded community for individualism. We've traded wise living for an illusion of freedom. We've neglected character in favor of the cult of personality. More on that next week. Jesus says, come to me. Come be with me. Come have some water. Second, maybe you've been um, following Jesus and you feel a little bit fed up of the wilderness now. You want it to be easy, or maybe just even a little easier. I want to say embrace Isaiah 35 these um, next few weeks. Go pray your way through it. It's written into this context of finding God's hope amidst deep brokenness and sorrow. Alec Mottier put this beautifully in his commentary. The Exodus pilgrim looked, looking ahead, did not see the blossomness, the Sorry, the blossoming, only the barrenness. The blossoming came as they walked the pilgrim path. I love that image of the Christian life. Looking forward, we see desert. Looking back, we see God's hand bringing beauty even out of brokenness. There's even a reading of this passage which suggests it's the presence of God's pilgrim people seeking God's presence as they go, which beautifies the land beautifies the wilderness as we seek God's presence the world around us is enlivened and transformed again we'll come back to that when we look at mission that third goal of learning to do what Jesus did finally finally and with all this talk of discipleship to Jesus there are just two things you may consider doing first is if this is new to you or causing you to think about your faith in a different way can I encourage you to come along to Alpha Alpha Uh, As I said, starting on Thursday evenings, later on in September. It's a great way to explore uh, questions that you have around uh, faith and in a relaxed and welcoming environment with others. Ask me for details after the service. Um, I think there's also a sign up through the um, uh, church newsletter that came out on Wednesday. Second, you may be realising that you've reached a moment where you want to draw a line in the sand and say, either for the first time or in a new way, I want to be a disciple of Jesus it's a very uh, profound and simple symbol that Jesus told his disciples used to mark this it's called baptism and uh, on October the 15th we're going to have a giant paddling pool I think it's more than the giant paddling pool it's a, a pool with a heater um not that we need a heater right now um and uh, several people um several members of our church family are going to be baptized um, uh, in it on that day, and you know, baptism isn't just a thing for babies; it's for adults too. Um, if you've never been baptized as a disciple of Jesus and would like to, come and speak to me uh, today after the service. Come and grab me. If you were baptized as a baby, you can't be baptized again in the Church of England, but you can reaffirm your baptism in the pool, um, and that goes for older children and adults. The process is very much the same as baptism; the words are just a little bit changed. So, do please consider. Um, getting baptized in october if that's this is the right moment for you to do that it will be a real celebration day